Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm the other host, Timothy Deal. And we are zooming into 1982. I am now two years old. <laughs> <laughs> I am not quite born yet, <laughs> but we are in the decade of our being alive. We have some familiarity with 80s movies. Yeah, right? you're a young kid, you're like, hey, your parents are showing you all these 80s movies. Like, oh, E.T., oh, Star Trek, oh, all these things are part of my formative years. Yes, so we're in a very familiar decade, although at the same time, you're not fully aware of the decade since you're very young by the end yeah, of it. Yeah, you just got, you have a, uh, a tilted view of it yeah. based on like what you remember and then the sort of things your parents said, hey, I watch Star Wars. Like, you know, yeah. that was before I was born, but not much and... Yeah, like, and hey. and you're it's like when you were looking through library books and reading things like it's almost like excavating what was this decade I was born into. Yeah. Oh, especially doing history, like oh that was happening when I was like four. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I kind of vaguely remember that Ronald Reagan guy. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, we are in 1982, and we are talking this episode about Blade Runner. That's right. So this is a cult classic. It'll be interesting to dive into the reaction to this movie when it came out and the popularity it found after the fact. Which is different than a lot of our other movies. Yeah, than some of them. Yeah, we, uh, yeah. But first, let's go and see what was happening in film around this time. Right, Wikipedia rundown time. So last time we talked about the new Hollywood era or Hollywood new wave. Depending you mean on the bleak age. The bleak age <laughs> or the golden age or a golden age, depending on who you talk to, yeah. where directors had carte blanche, essentially, to the studios kind of gave them lots of control because they didn't know what the kids like these days and seemed like they, the directors did. And there was the Hayes Code, so they kind of do all kinds of different things that they couldn't get away with earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, this year, 1982, we're pretty much on the tail end of that. The early 80s is kind of when that era died off. And there were a couple factors that brought about that change. One was two little known filmmakers called George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I, I've heard of them, I think, somewhere, yeah. just slightly. Between Jaws, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Close probably. Encounters of the Third Kind, they revolutionized blockbusters. And they really showed how high concept movies, which are kind of like your... The high concept is, is like you can tell someone quickly and they get the idea, okay, this is what this movie's about. Yeah. Guys with laser swords taking down an evil empire. Got it. Let's go. High concept or adventure movies could bring in mass audiences. It really kind of revolutionized like what a blockbuster was. Everyone's just, they want to go see it. Everyone wants to see it and they just make, well, money for one, but also just <laughs> entertaining movies. Yep. Some people would lament this as uh, a lot of the up and coming filmmakers suddenly weren't interested in like making this real artsy Fellini style meditation piece. Like, no, I want to make the next Star Wars. I want to make the next horror Jaws kind of movie. So the focus changed a lot. Um, another factor for the end of, of the new wave movement, some of these director-driven projects where a director was given free reign to do whatever, uh, they're beginning to backfire. There were a number of prominent movies in the early 80s that the budgets were just ballooning and they wound up being colossal box office flops. The most notable one of this was probably Heaven's Gate, a Western from 1980. This one is infamous for basically, it was such a big flop, the 
corporation that owned United Arts wound up selling it to MGM. Wow. And United Arts was like founded by Charlie Chaplin and yeah. Mary Pickford back in the 1920s, you might remember. So See, boundaries are good. Like unfettered creativity is not always yeah, helpful. Yeah, basically you need, sometimes studios need to be able to put set. I mean, if you're a Steven Spielberg or Lucas, sometimes, you know, they can have structures in place to help them organize, but then something that you need, the studios needed that kind of keep a, a rein in on some of these directors. Even Francis Ford Coppola, the director of The Godfather, he had a major flop in one from the heart, which was a movie from 1982, which basically put him on a back foot throughout the rest of the decade, mm-hmm. trying to make up debts. And uh, he might, I think he had to sell off his studio too. Oh, wow. The other thing that's, I think, kind of a factor, there was a tragic helicopter accident that killed a lead actor and two child actors during the filming of Twilight Zone, the movie in 1982. And uh, Spielberg himself, who was a producer on this movie, actually, okay, okay. but he was not involved in this particular accident. I think it was the director, John Landis, um, okay. who was the director for that shoot. And Spielberg was very disgusted in how he handled the whole situation. And he really called out in public for the reigning in of directors who were being too demanding. And that led to a lot of reforms on filmmaking safety and child labor laws. Yeah, I never heard of that, but that, yeah, that's big. One of those flashpoints that suddenly everyone looks and like, maybe we should do something different. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, every once in a while, there's a, a terrible, tragic accident like that. Just a, like, was it this year? I think earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, there was this, an accident involving Alec Baldwin where he accidentally shot someone. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was probably the most egregious film accident since this Twilight Zone incident. So those those things all led to kind of the putting some more controls on directors. Um, again, there are your big name directors that still have a lot of sway, pull over their own movies, your Tarantino, your Christopher Nolan, uh, Scorsese. But at the same time, it's not qu- it's not quite what the, the American new wave movement was. Well, while that was dying, there were some, also some technological changes that was giving more opportunities. That's right. Directors as well. Yeah, the 80s were a time of uh, new technologies right on the horizon. Lucasfilm, this year in 1982, while it's working on Return of the Jedi, starts developing the THX sound system. Which is a big deal. Like, I remember listening to a podcast, 20,000 Hertz, talking about how it just revolutionized theaters. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things, theaters had been focused for a long time. We talked about the widescreen. Mm -hmm. Like, it was all about the picture. But Lucas was like, no, we've spent all this money on these cool new sound effects and Mm -hmm. we can't, we're missing not hearing John Williams score. I mean, that's, you know, sound is, has become just as important part of movies as the pictures have. And most people know that THX sound now too. That's true. That's true. It's very distinctive. Also coming up on the horizon, computer graphics. Mm. And this year, 1982, there were two films that utilized this new technology. One was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Um, I really want to just go, Khan! <laughs> right now, but I can't do it well. <laughs> I think the, the computer graphics must have been like the... Uh, probably the Bird of Prey. And, and Well, maybe. No, but no also, that would have been model. That, prob- that was probably model. I think the like, simulation of Genesis oh, okay. might have been, for those yep. of you who've seen it. Uh, but even more extensively, another movie that used computer graphics was Tron. Which makes sense. Which makes sense. Again, it came out the summer of 1982, and uh, it was a movie that takes place in a video game, which is interesting to think about now, considering how big video games have gotten. There's still a stigma for video game movies not being very good, Yeah, which is interesting. 
Uh, videotape is uh, also on the horizon. I mean, it's been around. Sony debuted the Betamax in 1974. The company JVC debuted the VHS in 1975. There's a lot of war going on between well, those two formats. And then just legally it gets interesting because, yes. you know, now you're recording things that are other people's intellectual property, technically. Yeah, so there was a lot of court battles about this. And it wasn't until a Supreme Court decision in 1984 that permitted the continued sale of ECRs. And once that was established, Hollywood learned to deal with, adapt with videotape yeah. after that. And it became a good revenue source for them. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's, that's 1984 when that gets settled. So that's just around the corner, too. Uh, meanwhile, music videos are a thing. Um, I wouldn't have necessarily thought to include this, but we were reminded of music videos uh, watching this movie. So I'll just mention that MTV had started on August 1st, 1981. Uh, I guess music videos w- were becoming to be a thing even in the late 70s, okay. which I didn't know. But I was like, well, if MTV was a whole station, that means they must have started and just showing on like special TV programs, I'm guessing. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. In the 70s or something. And if you're wondering... Since there was MTV in 81, what about cable? Well, cable TV had already begun. I think actually it was a medium that had been experimented with fairly early on in the development of television, Hmm. Um, but it was not widespread yet. In 1978, 7.5% of Americans had cable. By 1988, that number had gone up to 52.8%. That's massive uh, increase. You wouldn't be in the cable business between 78 and 88. Yeah, pretty much. That 10 years was the cable TV boom, essentially. So yeah, there's a lot of those technologies coming up. You know, we're talking about 80s movies. Yeah. 80s movies have a very specific feel to them. Most of them, yeah, you can just tell. And it's interesting different perspectives people will bring to why this was the case. A lot of leftists will talk about like, oh, we were in a recession at the beginning of the 80s and there was this Reagan economics and all this. They have this kind of dark view of it. From a conservative perspective, I think this is a time when the country was still reeling from the revolutions of the previous two decades, mm-hmm. all the social upheaval and stuff. And I think you can look into the the rise of conservative politics during this decade as kind of a seeking stability from traditional values that have been kind of pushed aside. But also, you're embracing the promise of new technologies. So I think that's where you get this weird mix of like, you know, you've got E.T., this very heartwarming, family-friendly film has become very popular. And you've got more of these looking for these more mainstream kinds of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And yet there's still this dark undercurrent of like, we're in a weird, new, unfamiliar territory. So you get these these weird 80s fantasies that are like, the world's kind of creepy and there's like... Wow, I'm going to that. It's a story school. Never mind. <laughs> but, but I, I think yeah. it's worth touching on. Like, it's interesting. That's my theory for why 80s movies came out that way. Uh, but anyway, honing in again on 1982, uh, some of the notable films from this year, the top grossing was E.T., The Extraterrestrial, yeah. which became the highest grossing film ever until Jurassic Park took the title in 1993. Also Spielberg. And another Spielberg <laughs> movie, yes. I, and I don't know if the numbers for the for that title always seemed to fluctuate i thought sometimes yeah. star wars took the it over after re-releases it depends how if they count the re-releases and stuff i remember back yeah. when they were first re-releasing them they would they jumped up a lot uh-huh. but, they would kind of leapfrog maybe yeah. but anyway the oscar winners for the year the big one and this year was gandhi gandhi won best film best director for richard attenborough and best actor in ben kingsley Best Actress, however, went to Meryl Streep, not her first Oscar win and not her last, uh, for the movie Sophie's Choice. 
as far as this week's episode go, my other nominations besides Blade Runner were Gandhi, since it was an Oscar favorite, and Conan the Barbarian, uh, which is another cult classic, kind of. Another cult classic. It's what launched Arnold Schwarzenegger's career Mm -hmm. and also launched, inspired a lot of uh, sword and sorcery movies. Yeah, yeah. Followed after in its footsteps. And one reason to pick Gandhi is because we had done Lawrence of Arabia, and we we wanted yeah, pick something different. Not another biopic, essentially. Yeah. So, and honestly, I think personally, I see Blade Runner talked about way more than Gandhi. Yes, I think it's had a longer influence. Yeah, I, I would say so. Other notable events in the world of film, according to Wikipedia, on June twenty second, nineteen eighty two, the Coca Cola Company acquired Columbia Pictures for seven hundred million dollars. I did not know Coca Cola once owned a movie studio. I did not. No, I read. Yeah, I read that. I did not remember that at all. Yeah. I mean, Columbia Pictures would later be sold to Sony in 1989, and they still own it now. Okay. So that's that. On October 22nd was the release of First Blood, the very first Rambo movie. Yep. Interestingly, this was a big year for Sylvester Stallone because Rocky Three was also released this year on May 28th. Uh, these next two things, these are not huge in the world of film, but like personally, They're, yeah, I was gonna say personal, personal genre. These are very interesting. On July sixteenth was the release of Secret of Nim. That was important in the world of animation because it was Don Bluth's first independent animated feature, oh, okay. and I think it really inspired like the success of Don Bluth for one. And this, it was a modest hit; it didn't have a wide reach, but definitely caught the attention of Steven Spielberg, who would then go on to collaborate with Don Bluth on An American Tale. Yeah, and the competition that Bluth would provide would really kind of spur Disney to kind of get its act together in terms <laughs> of animation. And I think in that way, since sparked the Disney Renaissance. The other notable thing in 1982 on December 17th was the release of The Dark Crystal. Very 80s movie. Yes. And of <laughs> course, as a Jim Henson fan, I had to I had to mention that. I couldn't let that go. Uh, this year marks the film debuts of Antonio Banderas, Nicolas Cage, Glenn Close, Angelina Jolie, Jet Li, Eddie Murphy, and many more. So if you like the full list, you can go check out 1982 in film on Wikipedia. Now, this movie is Blade Runner, a science fiction movie starring uh, Harrison Ford. So give us kind of the rundown of what what do we need to know if you've never seen this thing. Okay. Blade Runner is directed by Ridley Scott. Like you said, it stars Harrison Ford, has a supporting cast that includes Rutger Hauer, who is the um, the main villain. replicant of the villain at the end. Quote, unquote. And I just have to mention that he also played the main villain in Kingdom Hearts 3 later on. Oh, really? Yeah, which deals with a number of vessels called replicas. So, which similar is, themes, yeah, similar themes. That's why the director of that series, Tetsu Nomura, really liked casting his villains. Like Rutger Hauger was taking over a role previously played by Leonard Nimoy. Okay, and after Leonard Nimoy died, Rutger took it over, and then after he died, uh, Christopher Lloyd played the same role. So, <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Anyway, side note. Uh, also, there's Sean Young who plays the femme fatale essentially in this movie, and Edward James Olmos, who is the other Blade Runner, I guess. Yeah. He, yeah. So he's, he doesn't have a huge role, but I just wanted to mention him because he is an established actor. So what is this movie about? So this is a sci-fi noir film that takes place in the far-off future year of 2019, <laughs> where an evil corporation has created androids called replicants that look and act just like humans. Police surveillance is everywhere, and Los Angeles has become a dark, smoldering, hellish cityscape. Aside from the flying cars, they got it pretty accurate. <laughs> but I'm bunching. 
Harrison Ford plays Rick Deckard, a former police officer known as a Blade Runner, a sort of detective who tracks down and kills rogue replicants which have been outlawed on Earth. Deckard's former boss forces him to return to the job to track down four violent replicants who recently illegally returned to Earth from planetary colonies where they had been stationed. As Deckard goes through his investigation, it's implied that Deckard is haunted by the nature of his work, especially after he's introduced to Rachel, a beautiful woman who has no idea she's been given false memories and is actually a replicant herself. Meanwhile, the rogue replicants, led by the dangerous and enigmatic Roy Beatty, are on a hunt of their own to find a way to meet the CEO of the Tyrell Corporation, the company that made them, so they can have a face-to-face conversation with their maker. This is a color film, generally speaking, <laughs> because a lot of this is... Pretty, pretty dark tones. Yeah, this is set in a very noir setting, so it almost looks black and white-ish, but there's definitely color in here at times. Neon. La neon. La neon, <laughs> yes, indeed. The screen ratio is the wide, wide screen of 2.39 over 1. The length is, uh, at least the version we watch, is 117 minutes. There are numerous versions. There are numerous versions. That's one hour and 57 minutes. We watch the final cut. There are like seven to eight versions of this film, but there's really only three that have been widely released in the U.S. Although, I guess the original work print is included in one like the ultimate Blu-ray five-disc collections or whatever. Okay, interesting. Yeah, but the main ones are the original theatrical version, which is 113 minutes. The director's cut from 1992, which is 116 minutes, and this version, the final cut, again, 117 minutes. And we'll go into some more detail about those cuts in a minute. This is rated R for violence and brief nudity. This is our first R movie. This is our first R movie of the season. And it feels a little bit like it. It does. It does. And I would say some of the violence feels appropriate. Some of it feels gratuitous to me. Yeah. The final cut, especially, like, I remember, I I think the first version I watched this was director's cut. And I remember the VHS case talking about, like, violence included not in the original version, which I think think is mostly the, like, murder scene toward the end where the guy gets his skull crushed, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, Some of it made sense. And some of it was like, yeah, we don't need quite this much. Yeah. And I think the nudity comes from a scene where a woman is changing and he's you see her bare breasts for a second and it's okay that's very gratuitous not necessary yeah no that was not necessary but the score is a unique blend of i like how wikipedia put this classic composition and futuristic synthesizers by a guy called vangeles which uh, that's his his professional name apparently he's greek he had previously composed the score for Chariots of Fire. See, when you mentioned that, so I'm like, okay, I see the similarities. I mean, this is much more sci-fi. Yeah, much but more sci-fi. There is that, yeah, they make sense together. Yeah, it does. This is the era of synthesizers, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And it really works for this movie and for this setting. Okay, so what? Here's what I find most interesting about this movie over some we've seen. Like, why is this well known? Like, we've already hinted that originally it was not as well known, correct? Yes, it did okay at theaters. It opened at number two at the box office, but it was not a big hit of 1982. Partly because there was a lot of other sci-fi and fantasy type fit things, particularly that summer. We already mentioned Star Trek II yep. and ET. There was also Poltergeist and the Thing, and of course. Mega Force. Mega Force. <laughs> if you don't know, it's this bad riff tracked movie. Which, funnily enough, came out the very same day as Blade Runner and The Thing, which The Thing, I guess, didn't do great business either. But uh, yes, the fact that when I saw that was Mega Force, the fact that I've actually seen that on Rift Tracks, that's yeah. hilarious. 
The critical response was a little more mixed. The critics praised the visuals and special effects, but felt the human story was lacking. Even Roger Ebert was one of the critics who kind of felt that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, it did win a Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation, and it was nominated for two Oscars for that year, Best Art Direction and Best Visual Effects, although it won neither one. But now it's legacy. I mean, I've heard about it numerous times over the year, people saying, you need to see this movie, or this is an important movie, or what? You haven't, you like science fiction? You haven't watched this thing yet? Yeah. So what what is the influence? So from what I could tell, I mean, it got popular through home video, and but also particularly, it seemed to me that there was a limited theatrical release of the work print after it was discovered. So define work print. So a work print, basically, this was not even the final theatrical version. This would have been an early version of the film that had more of the stuff that, was later, that the studio later cut out okay. of it. It was probably not the version. The theatrical version had more narration provided by Harrison Ford. Yes. He was doing kind of like, I mean, and this was kind of the style of like a uh, private eye kind of talk. Like, yeah. Which, again, kind of Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, had been done in private detective radio and movies back in the 40s, which is what well, this is emulating in a science fiction setting. So it makes a little bit of sense. But it was originally done without that and uh, it allows the film to be more visual, yeah. like kind of let the audience put pieces together. The work print was discovered in a film vault. So Warner brothers gave permission for it to be shown at a festival. And there was enough interest in it that they would then booked it in 15 other cities in the U S where it seemed to perform pretty well, but Ridley Scott disowned it as a quote unquote director's cut because again, it was a work print. It was never yeah. intended to be widely shown. There were things that were incomplete. They weren't done quite yet. The, even the music was a little different than what was was not quite finished yet but there was enough interest in it that the studio decided to make an official director's cut that Ridley Scott was uh, partially involved in although not completely I guess he was busy working on another movie at the time although he gave them feedback for what he wanted done that included the removal of the narration uh, reinsertion of a unicorn dream sequence which sounds strange and it kind of is, is. <laughs> uh, include brought back some of the violent scenes and removal of a happy ending scene that the studio wanted for the actual version. Movie at all, really, probably. Probably. Did did you watch it? Uh, Oh, yeah, I did watch that little scene. At least, if there was more, I don't know, but the narration scene, the happy... Yeah, there's there's a little little longer version of that where there's actually some dialogue in between those two characters, but I'll talk with you more about that later. But anyway, so that the director's cut was uh, the release of that. I think they released it in theaters, and then they also put it on video, and I think... Between those things, those got a lot of people's interest in this thing that maybe more so than it was when it first came out. Developed the cult following, and there are just tons. Like, if you look at Wikipedia, just as a place to start, you'll find references to lots of documentaries and books and articles about this thing. The look of it, especially, inspired a lot of science fiction that came after Because it, it is, a, like, the gritty city is very interesting. And then matching it, or the, almost the juxtaposition of the, like, the old-school detective... I don't work here anymore. Give it to Holden. He's good. I did. He can breathe okay, as long as nobody unplugs him. It's not good enough. Not good as you. I need you, Dex. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. It was quit when I come in here, Brian. I'm twice as quit now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal. You're not cop, you're little people. I mean, there's a scene where he's like in the, the office and there's a the normal fan going and a desk. And then you go outside and there's the flying cars and the the neon lights and the giant billboards. And it's it's very, if you know kind of what a dark gray dystopian looks like, it's 
kind of this movie. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I mean, you could say it created the style. I mean, I do think this movie probably took a lot of inspiration itself from, and I know it did, from Metropolis. Metropolis, and probably other things too, but Metropolis would be one I would think of. Yeah, yeah. There's another like sci-fi movie, a silent film, that involves a massive city and a very, very memorable presence too. Mm-hmm. But some examples of works that, I mean, this in some ways also really was a big inspiration for the whole cyberpunk movement. Mm-hmm. You, those of you who know what that is, if not, look it up. This is also specifically mis- mentioned on Wikipedia as an inspiration for Battlestar Galactica, the reboots. Yeah, I can completely see that, especially just the replicant idea as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The anime film, Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just my, we were talking about while we watched and I'm wondering about Brazil. I actually, I looked up a little bit and the, the, I've seen several articles making the connection, both of them being influenced or future things. So I don't know how much Brazil was influenced by this. I'm sure it's somewhat. Because, Some, because like the, Brazil came out, I think, in 85. So it may have been like already in production when Blade Runner came out. Yeah. So it seems hard to imagine there wasn't a little bit of influence, but maybe some of the ideas were already in place. Or maybe just one of those like everyone's drinking the same water, but it's, yeah. it, has, it has the same feel, but it's more like bureaucracy, like office and uh-huh. dystopian. So it's different, but it has that same feel. Yeah. Yeah. We saw similarities also in places where maybe it shouldn't have gotten inspiration. <laughs> I think the pilot for Babylon 5, I remember J. Michael Szerzyski in his autobiography mentioned that the director of photography wanted to do it a lot darker and shoot it like lights in weird places. And him being kind of a, a nervous new showrunner was like, okay, sure. And then like after the fact, he's like, no, this is not what we want our show to be. Yeah. And I think that idea from that look came from Blade Runner. It was probably around the time when the director's cut was being circulated yeah. shortly after that. And also same thing with the Super Mario Brothers movie. The, for original, some, yeah. the original movie for some weird reason. Yeah, it does, should not. Yeah. I, and the one, once or twice, I felt like there's Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I definitely got Cowboy Bebop vibes after the fact, which is another anime series that's kind of a sci-fi cyberpunk noir. It is, yeah. And even some of the music has that... That jazzy kind of tone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. at times. How about critics? Nowadays, do they, they rank it places? Yes, it, it has re- like it has really risen in critics' estimation. It was selected for the preservation in the United States National Film Registry in 1993. So again, not too long after that director's cut. It appeared on the following uh, American Film Institute lists. Top 100 thrills, thrilling movies, uh, ranked at number 74. On the 10th anniversary of 100 movies, it ranked at number 97. Wow. Interestingly, it did not make the first initial list of top 100 movies. So it movies. just keeps kind of going up, I think, as its influence spreads. Basically. On their 10 top 10, when they ranked 10 science fiction movies, it ranked at number 6. Interesting. In 2003, Entertainment Weekly listed it as number 9 on its list of top 50 cult movies. Okay. And in 2012, the film magazine Sight and Sound pulled critics and directors on top 250 and 100 films, respectively. And Blade Runner ranked as number 69 and 67 on those lists. Interesting. And there's a whole bunch of other lists on the Blade Runner article on Wikipedia. If you want to read the complete list and where it ranked and all those things, go check that out. All right, so that's what the people out there think. Yeah, that's a, that's a sampling. So what do we think, Tim? That's a good question. Well, had you, this is just a movie that you had heard of for a long time? Various people told me, have you seen this? You should watch this. Why yeah, didn't never, you? 
I don't, well, honestly, just because, like, I don't watch movies except with other people. Oh, okay. um, so that you didn't have a... I, someone didn't say, hey, let's go watch this thing. So, <laughs> okay, until now. It, again, it was on my radar partly because it was science fiction, partly because it was Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. and partly because it was one of those names that just kind of circulated as... Just kept coming up. And I've even read the book in the last... Oh, yeah, we didn't years. even mention that earlier. What's that called? Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. That's the original novel. Yeah, and I forgot to mention in our influence section that I think you could say the fact that several other movies came out that were other adaptations of his work, Philip K. Dick's work, like Total Recall, Minority Report, Paycheck, not as famous as those other two. Probably probably. take some of the visuals from here, too. Yeah, probably inspiration for even why they even were made. Yeah. Um, And also, there was a sequel to this made just in 2017 called Blade Runner 2049. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, my first encounter with this movie is a funny thing, because I remember finding this in my library VHS tape collection okay, and being just really confused and fascinated, like, what is this thing? Like, Harrison Ford in the science fiction violent thing that I've never heard of? <laughs> I was probably in junior high, and it's like, and the time was like, I don't know if I should be watching this or looking, but it was, yeah. I was fascinated by it. Would finally end up watching it when I was in college, I think mm-hmm. my junior year, watched it with Mike Jarvis. Okay, yes. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure we watched the director's cut at the time that was that was what was available so but it had been a long time i remembered certain details but like the whole overall picture i haven't seen blade runner 2049 yet because it's like i really need to revisit the original one because i knew there was a lot i did not remember yeah so that being said you want to listen to our instant reactions let's hear what we thought okay here we go Okay, I don't always say stuff when I've already seen the movie, but this case, I I think I will, just because this is a different one. Um, visually, I remember the the crazy setting. I forgot how much like a music video this is, kind of at times, uh, with some of the weird interspersed shots, like when Deckard was getting ready to go into the JF's house or whatever, and you keep seeing the woman in like the veil. Mm-hmm. It felt very music video ish to me. But more thoughts we'll unpack later on. How about you, Nick? Yes, it's very much a vision. I can see why people like it that way. Some of the science fiction stuff I enjoyed, I I feel like the last act switches into a more horror, surreal sense than the rest of it. And I don't know why I feel about that. But yeah, I'll have more later. I don't think I've seen anything quite like this. I can't uh, put it into a clean category as a, a lay TV watcher. I thought that it was... In one sense, confusing to look at because I, I had trouble keeping track of the world because it, it kept changing or I, I didn't like have enough consistency or, or I felt like a lot of the shots were close in and I never got a broad view of what the world was. And I'm sure that that was very intentional. And for at least a long while there, I was having to really concentrate to follow who are the main characters. Can I recognize them? It feels like there's a lot of them. And and there were so many crowded shots, too. I thought, lots of people, lots of objects, lots of wiggling through spaces. When am I going to look at a field? (laughs) Get outside the city. Something like that. Yes. Strange movie. Watching this, and I don't know if this is because I thought you guys, Nick and Tim, said something about it being a forerunner to a lot of shows. But I I did have a sense that I had seen 
this style in various places. I also got that whole, a little bit of the sense of Minority Report just from, well, eyeball shots and <laughs> just the the dark grittiness of it. Not sure I liked it. I don't know. It, it was a very strange, I don't know. The music threw me a little bit. It was a little too 80s for me. The hair was so 80s. Like, what? Why? Why? How is that such a distinctive feature of the 80s, the hair? Um, so there were things that distracted me from the, the plot of the movie, but I don't know. I don't know what I feel about it. It was okay. All right, so that was us last week, and what do we still think about this? I think we have already mentioned that the setting is just one of these draws to this movie. Yeah, I still feel like it is the most distinctive part of it. For me, probably the most memorable thing. It is the most fully realized part of it, but I think there's other parts of it that are still not quite completely formulated. Okay. You know, it's interesting what Janelle said. I was just thinking about, how she said like didn't think there was a lot enough focus on the surroundings and she was getting yeah. spatially I think confused in where certain things was, and I can see that because the setting is very memorable. Again, yes. the big the big cities, the the fact that it feels run down and high tech at the same time. And it's crowded. A lot of the shots are crowded, yeah. either with people or stuff. Yeah, but it's not super. And compared to say, I always feel like Spielberg is kind of my go-to in terms of like being really good at making sure the audience feels oriented and where the positioning of where everything is at. Yeah, this this movie, yeah. It's not interested in that necessarily. It's not the focus. It's it's a little bit more impressionistic maybe. It is. Yeah, as a style, it is it is more impressionistic, more like we mentioned music video-ish in mm-hmm. places where it's like, or like I think I said then, it's, it's more of a vision. It's more like, a, I mean, in some ways it's like a silent film. They, all, they don't explain... There's hardly a, anything. Yeah, there's a lot they don't explain. I mean, when we looked at the version with the had Harrison Ford's narration of it, most of it is kind of banal. It's yeah. it's really not useful. It's much more interesting to let the audience piece things together. New climate, recreational They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. Where I did find some of it was actually kind of interesting was helping connect the thread of his investigation. Mm -hmm. Because some of that wasn't super clear to me, even on the second watch. It was like, I wasn't quite sure what the clues were supposed to be connecting. It's it's one of those movies that like visually is kind of disorienting, actually, visually. Purposely so. Purpose, I think purposely the show, especially in the city. Like it's, it's, it's the easiest to follow, and this is probably on purpose, when you're at the corporation. Mm. You know, you got the big rooms and just a few people and yeah. lots of space. Yeah. I think there's that purposeful juxtaposition to use fancy word twice. But like the plot itself, I think is interesting, full of lots of ideas, but the voiceovers don't help a lot. But like they could have pulled more threads or meaning out somehow, I feel like. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. 
there's a lot of discussion of what it means to be human and what it means to be created and all this other stuff, but it's all very kind of buried under the visual. <laughs> yeah. Well, so would you say that, that some of the original critics who talked about it having the weakness of being kind of the human story is kind of still its weakness? I think that it is still its weakness. It is more concerned with being interested in connecting visual dots and connecting logical dots. I feel like not the logic's there. Look, you can. I think one reason to call it classic is because you can discuss these things. Yeah, but it's a cult classic because you have to dig to talk about some of the main character things and the the big themes. Yeah, I had a film professor once say that a cult classic is that because there was something something off about it that prevented it from being having widespread success. Mm-hmm. But there is a core audience that found details in it that are fascinating enough that they want to fill in some of the work that, again, this may be a bad interpretation because sometimes, you know, literary works aren't super clear on the service level, too. They may seem very on a surface level and they may seem very plain. It's like, why is this such a literary classic? Well, it's because the critics are able to unearth a lot that are kind of buried in the subtext. And I think there's a lot of subtext here. I think... I think it's harder for a normal moviegoer to pull it out. But I do think, I do think it has elements of that literariness, if you want to yeah. say it that way. And I, I do think that's one reason why it, it is, has inspired so many analyses, yeah. analyses, whatever the plural of analysis is. Um, because, yeah, there are enough details. It's almost like how you've said about, like, say, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah. These movies and stories where you feel like there's there's this bigger picture that you just can't quite put your your get a hold of. You just gotta fill in a little bit more. And I think that inspires, like, even when I was, like, looking up clips for kind of reviewing in my memory what about this thing, I can totally see how you can get sucked into some of the details of trying to unearth this story. And not, not that it's all confusing, but also these questions about what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. and she's a replicant isn't she i'm impressed how many questions does it usually take to spot one i don't get it tyrell how many questions 20 30 cross-referenced it took more than a hundred for rachel didn't it she doesn't know she's beginning to suspect i think suspect how can it not know what it is commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. The flip side of this, I do realize in some ways, is that this is a question I think is more interesting to non-Christians than it is to Christians. Yeah, that's because I think for Christians, we're like, we're made in the image of God. That's that. So that this will make someone human. Well, but and so a, an android is inherently not that necessarily because it's fabricated. And so there's a clear difference for us between something that's God made and something that's man made. I mean, it's been a while since I've read the novel, but I remember the novel being even kind of like, they're having all these issues about the difference and all this. I'm like, I don't, I couldn't connect with it in the same way that some people can, even the novel. I mean, the novel is full of interesting ideas, but I don't know from my memory if it, I had a much investment in it. I think in this way, this movie too, because Harrison Ford is just kind of a worn down, soul-weary detective, but there's not much 
movement on his part. Mm. There's not much movement for the replicants either. Yeah. It's like, this is how the world exists. And then it just kind of, some plot happens, but it doesn't change anything about how the world exists or even what anyone thinks about how the world exists. Yeah. So there's not a lot of thematic movement, even though it's, it's rich with it. Yeah. You could see how this, this film, at least in this original version, feels very much like the kind of the capstone for the American new wave. Mm -hmm. When we talked about like the seventies movies that have kind of this irresolution at the end. Yes. This kind of feels like that. We won't spoil the ending, but the ending is kind of, Ambiguous. Well, I mean, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. If you've heard any conversation about this movie, there's, there's this whole debate about whether Harrison Ford's character is a replicant, actually. See, I don't but they, know, don't, they don't actually talk about it that much in the movie. I don't know why that's a question. I mean, I mean, I guess I kind of get it. Yeah, the whole question of whether he is Harrison Ford is the Deckard character is actually a replicant, I think it's only brought up like twice. Um, and honestly, it really doesn't matter that much, in my opinion, even though there's a lot of conversation about it. Apparently... Harrison Ford and the producer wanted Deckard to be human. Ridley Scott wanted him to be a replicant. It still argues that he is. Uh, the screenwriter said, no, it's ambiguous. It's meant to be taken either way, And as, which I think is actually the most accurate for the movie, in my opinion, which also means that it really doesn't matter. And it's one of those things where there's almost no difference between the human and the replicants anyway, except for lifespan. Mm -hmm. Anyways, yeah, we can deep into Again, why is it called class? Look, we've just started to do a thumbnail sketch of the thing. We're already getting into deep, deep waters. Deep waters. It's true. It's so, true. So this again, this podcast is just to give you a taste. If you would like to dive deeper, go check out the movie. <laughs> but I, so the the highlight is that the setting and the world, and there's a lot you can talk about. But the weakness is that it's a little weak in making the connections and in making the to have an emotional. I don't know. I don't know. There's something. There's something not fully formed about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't get it. What do they risk coming back to Earth for? That's unusual. Why? What do they want out of the Tyrell Corporation? You tell me, pal. That's what you're here for. I will mention, too, one other difference between the director's cut and the final cut is that the final cut has got some color correction changes on it. Okay. And for those of you who are real techie color interested i've seen some comparisons i think the the director's cut some of the versions might be better because like final cut adds a lot of like this teal color okay, yeah. to it that especially like if you do a side-by-side -side comparison watch some of those videos on youtube i actually like the the a lot of the street scenes the neon looks brighter and okay. against like a more dark background as opposed to the final cut i think sometimes a teal color kind of muddies the picture a little bit yeah so that might also make a difference for some of that spatial confusion anyway i just wanted to get that out there okay so that's our <laughs> quick highlights of it so uh, you have a question for me tim I do, and I apologize if my questions have been kind of nitpicky lately, but it's just the ones on. that come up, comes up. Is Deckard actually a good Blade Runner? If you say by good he kills the replicant, then yes, I think so. But again, apparently there's no other good Blade Runners because he gets highly involved in one, and he gets beat up by most of the other ones. Yeah, again, I'm, I apologize. This is probably a leading question because I was questioning it myself is like why is Deckard the one that I mean it makes sense from a story perspective yeah. but it's like he doesn't strike he strikes me as a as a decent detective good at tracking down clues he doesn't strike me as an assassin which the opening text kind of implies the whole Blade Runner's big purpose is to assassin, kill yeah the kill the and he replicants. hates killing I mean, it's one of those that like I think they just want to do that conflicted yeah. noir thing yeah yeah I mean I'm again I mean picky but I was like it's it's funny in this like giant 
surveillance technological system that they go with this like retired police officers like nope you got to do it yeah <laughs> okay i'm just curious because at least for me there's just something called classic-y about it what is one thing or one piece of information you think given to the audience that would really help this movie hmm a scene a narration something that you think would improve the movie it would be nice to have some sort of a villain's speech scene. Okay. Which is an interesting thing because the villain gets some interesting moments of like when he goes and talks to his creator yeah. and stuff like that. But like before that, he's just kind of this menacing presence. Morphology, longevity, insect dates. Don't know. I don't know such stuff. I just do eyes. Just eyes. Genetic design. Just eyes. You Nexus, huh? I design your eyes. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. It's so, so give him, give him humanity. Yeah, like being a replicant. Yeah, exactly. If you're gonna, if you're, I mean, it's kind of weird because in some ways the character who feels most like an android or replicant is the one who thinks that she isn't one. Yeah, which make of that what you will, I guess, <laughs> but. Yeah, I feel like to really, I don't know, there's been enough stories about, like, say, Data from Star yeah. Trek, who is an android. He has somehow has, has enough interesting scenes about him examining his own humanity or lack thereof or yeah. whatever he is that are super interesting that I feel like you could have, I don't know, some sort of soliloquy or something okay. with him early on with that Rutger Hager character, however you say his name. Okay. The, the Rory Beatty character that I think would flesh out some. That's what comes to mind. How about you? Um, now I have to answer my own question. Yes, exactly. You already asked me a serious question. Um, no. Um, I agree with you there. Or it, it seems like just make the to make the ending work better. It seems like there should be one more. I don't know. Scene between Harrison Ford's character and maybe the the almost character, or I don't know, some sort of decision scene. Like mm. basically, we get the climax and then like the ending scene. And it seems like there there needs to be something there to make the I don't know. I don't like the ending as is. Okay. They need more than that, but I could see doing that. Okay. Okay, so uh, here's my silly question. In order to determine if something's an android, you got to ask them a series of kind of odd questions. Mm-hmm. What good odd question determines someone's an android, Tim? Um, what is the airspeed of a, of a swallow? So if they don't laugh, they're an android. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, very good. <laughs> All right, so here here comes the rub now. Is it worth it? I mean, did we like the movie? Hmm. <laughs> I was about to add an answer, then I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm conflicted. Yeah. Because part of me, especially I think my my visual, intellectual part, found it interesting. Mm-hmm. My enjoyment one, not sure, like, it's like I, I am glad to have watched it. Yeah. It is a dark movie, and... I can see why in the one of the happy endings, why they go outside of the city because it does feel very claustrophobic, claustrophobic in, in, in the city yeah. for, and it's very effective in that sense. So I guess I would say I don't know that I personally, yeah, it's like is a strong word sometimes. Yeah. Appreciate and it. I appreciate the movie. Okay, I, I I can say that I appreciate the movie. Yeah, and I do think if you're into science fiction, 
I mean, go in with your own with your own discernments. Again, given some of the graphic content yeah, in this, yes, I absolutely. I would never push this movie on someone. You have to take in your own spiritual and personal discernment for what you're willing to see in movies. But again, from a science fiction perspective, if you're into cowboy bebop or any of those things. I think it's worth watching to see kind of the genesis of where that style came from. I think it's most worth watching, like you said, for anyone who's interested in the style. Because it's really the thing that lasts longest in my memory. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, right. I think that's go for the style, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a very dark, gritty kind of style. But if you know what you're going into, sometimes that's worth it. And again, if you're into, you know, especially there's a lot of modern science fiction that's kind of that are just grandchildren of this thing yeah so if you like that sort of modern stuff yeah give it a shot yeah so that is our 1982 blade runner uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, etc. Check out our website, derailedtrainsofthought.com, where you can find all episodes of this podcast, Let's Finally Watch This, as well as our main podcast, Derailed Trains of Thought, where we have over 130 episodes on all manner of storytelling for the creator and the consumer, and the Weekly Hijack, where we have our instant reactions to various TV shows. And next up, next episode is 1992. We are watching a Western, Unforgiven. By Clint Eastwood. I know nothing about. Apparently, I don't either. (laughs) You'll hear more about that next time, probably. All right. uh, Until next time, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.